Well, good morning, Northeast, and whether you're joining us online or on campus, you belong here. My name is Drew. I'm the lead pastor at Northeast, and this week we're going to look and come face-to-face with a man who likely had felt sidelined his entire life, a man that certainly you and I would not have selected to be a savior or a hero in a story. This week we're going to look at the story of Ehud. Ehud, a judge that God uses, who for all intents and purposes was unqualified, was inadequate, who was not suited for the job, and yet God selected. What we're going to see this week is that God is pleased to move in his strength when we surrender to him our weakness. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to Judges chapter 3. Because if you've ever felt unqualified, if you've ever felt imperfect or incapable or unsuited for something that, that God might be able to do with you, and you just don't feel like he could, then this is a story for you. And we find it in Judges chapter 3. So grab your Bibles. It's in the front half of your Bible. In fact, Judges is just seven books in after Deuteronomy, Joshua. If you hit uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you have gone too far. Judges chapter 3. We kicked off the book of Judges last week looking at chapters 1 and 2, and the pattern and the theme of Judges being that of broken people, gracious God. Broken people, gracious God. And over and over again, we see the people of Israel wander from God, walk away from God, only to fall into sin. In the midst of that consequence and chaos, they cry out to God. And what we saw last week is that God always responds to the heart that repents. And every time Israel cries out, God responds in grace. Broken people, gracious God. Broken people, gracious God. And it's this theme and this cycle then that we see in chapter three. The people are broken. They cry out and God sends them a deliverer, a judge to rescue them. So pick it up with me in Judges chapter three, beginning at verse one. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all that the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal, Hermon, as far as Libo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Now just stop there with me at the end of verse 7. So we start right back in the story in this cycle that we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 already, this cycle of what I call spiritual schizophrenia. There were one moment that people are wholly devoted to God, and the next minute they are disobeying him. And lest we judge Israel, when we read through the Old Testament, let's just confess that this is our cycle too. We are spiritual schizophrenics. 
One moment we're so devoted to God, and the next moment we're wandering and chasing after the things of this life. Their problem is our problem too. Broken people and yet gracious God. There's something fascinating though about this setup to chapter 3 before we see the judge. There's something fascinating about the setup. It says two times in this passage that God tests Israel by leaving these nations around them. God tests Israel. We see this two times, verses 1 and verses 4. And it leads to this question then, why would God do this? It seems an odd thing to do. Maybe you might even think even cruel of God that he would test his own people. After all, isn't God supposed to make our lives easy and just butter us up with rainbows and unicorns? So why is it that God then would willingly test his own people? Why is it that God might allow seasons of testing in our own lives? According to Judges, God does allow this. Why? Well, where we tend to view test as a negative thing, judges, and here from the Lord's estimation, doesn't view it as a negative thing at all. God has a purpose in testing. And I wanted to stop briefly and talk about this for a moment, because judges tells us exactly why God allows season of testings, uh, seasons of testing in our lives. And judges gives us two reasons why God does this for Israel, why he might also be doing it for us. First, According to verse 2, God allowed the nations to test them in order, it says, that they might learn war, in order that he might teach them war. It says in verse 2 that they might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. There was a group, a generation of Israelites who had come up who had never experienced battle. And this is a problem because they're now entering a land that is filled with an enemy, an enemy that wants to oppress Israel and enslave them. And yet this generation, Judges says, doesn't even know how to fight. So what does God do? He allows a season of testing, not to be cruel or harsh, but actually to be kind and to teach them something that they need to know. So first, God allows seasons of testing to teach and to train. In a a very real way, without this testing, Israel would have been killed. They would have been plucked off. We view, again, seasons of testing as negative, but God here seems to use seasons of testing for our strengthening, to teach us something we need to know for what is ahead. But there's a second reason, according to Judges chapter 3, it's found in verse 4. God allowed testing, the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey. To know whether Israel would obey the commands that God had given them. So there is a strengthening physically of them, teaching them this art of war, it would seem. But there's also a strengthening spiritually. There's a physical and a spiritual strengthening that God is doing in this moment. Scripture says that one of the ways that God seeks to grow us and develop us in our devotion to him is often through trials and tests, meaning that the seasons that are hard, the seasons where we beg God to get us out of them are often there for a purpose to draw us closer to God. And the thing that we are pressing against is actually for our good to draw us close. 
in a very real way than what we see first in the text. And what I don't want you to miss is that God allows seasons of testing for our spiritual strength and conditioning. God allows spiritual seasons of testing for our spiritual strength and conditioning. Think about it. The fall is right around the corner. Uh, we're all hoping and praying for football. And, and yet, the football season doesn't start with the tra- championship trophy. The football season actually starts with strength and conditioning camp. See, because if we're ever to get to the championship, we have to be conditioned for what is ahead. And, and what's true in football is true in life. And it's true of us spiritually. God seeks to strengthen us and condition us for what is ahead. And he does so out of kindness to us to draw us closer to him. In these moments when we wonder if we will survive, God is actually using this to extend our survival, to strengthen us, to condition our faith. Judges then would challenge us to pray differently. See, right now, maybe you're in a season of testing. Maybe you're in a season of struggle. And maybe you've just been praying, God, get me out of this. God, stop this. God, bring this to a close. But judges would have us perhaps pray different. And instead of asking God to rescue us from it, judges might have us ask God instead to grow us in it. The the problem for Israel, though, is instead of looking to God in this season of testing, they instead turn to the world. Uh, Verse 6 goes on and says that they give their daughters to the Canaanites and they take the sons from the Canaanites. They intermarry, which was against the thing that God had told them. It was against his command. Then in verse 7, it says that they forgot. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals. So here they've fallen in, in the midst of this testing, they've fallen back into the world. And that then leads into the cycle that we saw last week. It's the cycle where we see in verse 7 the sin of the people. They forgot God, they disobeyed, they served other gods. So the cycle begins with sin, verse 7. It results in consequence, we see in verse 8. They were oppressed by another nation. The king of Moab comes and he gathers allies and they seek to oppress Israel. The consequence then leads to this feeling of weight and sin, and there's finally then repentance, verse 9. They cry out to God. And as we saw last week, God always responds to the heart that repents. So consequence leads to repentance. Repentance leads to God's rescue, verse 10. He sends a judge. And ultimately, this results then in the final part of the cycle, which is peace, verse 11. The cycle is sin, consequence, repentance, rescue, peace. Over and over again, we see this cycle all the way through the book of Judges. You could could write those words if you want at the top of the page as Judges opens. Sin, consequence, repentance, rescue, peace. And it's this cycle then that we see lead us into this man that no one would have expected to have been a savior. A man who had largely spent much of his life likely sidelined. It's Ehud. So pick it up with me in verse 12. The story of Ehud. 
And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself to the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and he defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That is Jericho, by the way. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, that is 18 inches, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, that is the king, commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool of his roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And then Ehud went out into the porch, closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool of the chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. He said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and they did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So we see again this cycle, right? Sin, consequence, repentance, rescue, peace. The people of God sinned. They turned away from God. As a result, the king of Moab oppressed them. And in the midst of them crying out under this oppression, God raised up for them a deliverer. And the text says that God raised up to them in verse 15, a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, this seems like an odd detail to put in the story. Why make a fuss about Ehud being the left-handed man? But understand, this isn't just an odd detail. Understand that this makes Ehud an anomaly. An anomaly. No offense to my Southpaw friends out there. Uh, Later in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, we hear that there are uh, 700 men from the tribe of Benjamin, same tribe as Ehud, but 700 men from the tribe of Benjamin who were left-handed and could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. 
And so there are a group of men within the tribe of Benjamin who seem to be very skilled warriors, ambidextrous. They're able to fight with both hands. It might lead us to conclude that perhaps then Ehud is a great warrior, except there's a problem with the language here. In in chapter 3, the Hebrew here for language of left-handed, the Hebrew here literally means to shut or restrict in speaking of his right hand. There's a problem with Ehud. It's not that he is a warrior. In fact, it's that he is weak. There is actually a limitation with this man. And the text draws this out. It draws our attention to it. Culturally speaking, in this day and age, Ehud was an anomaly because the right hand was the right hand. The hand you were supposed to use. It was the hand of power. It was the hand that you would use to wield a sword in battle. Biblically, though, there's significance to it as well. Isaiah says, the book of Isaiah says that God swears by his right hand. It says in Psalms, That God has pleasures by his right hand. And the scriptures go on to later tell us, both in the book of Psalms and later in scripture, that Jesus sits at his right hand. Why? Because the right hand is the hand of power. It is the symbol of strength and power. And yet Ehud is an anomaly. This is the guy who was growing up and was probably overlooked and sidelined on the schoolyard and not picked for the team because He had a limitation. And yet this man who is sidelined by the world was now put front and center by God. And where we, you and I, see limitation, God sees opportunity. God sees in this man a vessel that he can use. He is God's choice for a deliverer. It says in verse 16 then that Ehud makes a sword for himself, double-edged. And he makes the sword a cubit, 18 inches, and he attaches it to the inside of his right thigh. Notice it says thigh, not hip. If you were right-handed, you would attach a sword to your left hip so that you could pull it and fight quickly. No one would attach a sword to the inside of their right thigh. Ehud here is using his limitation, and God is going to use it for strength, not weakness. He attaches it to a place that no one will suspect. And here this man that no one would suspect to be a warrior comes. He comes to the king and after paying tribute, and tribute here is like taxes, right? For them being oppressed by this king, they would have to pay tribute to the king. They come and they bring tribute. And then Ehud sends the people on and he turns back to the king and he says, King, I have a secret message for you. The king at this moment tells his servants to leave. He gets rid of his security detail. The question is, if Ehud was a mighty warrior, if the Benjamites were known for this and Ehud was a part of this, why would the king allow such a man in his presence alone? See, again, I think Ehud was viewed not as a warrior, but as weak, as someone who wasn't a threat. And the king feels comfortable in the presence of his enemy because there's not much to look at in this left-handed man. So the king sends away his servants, his security detail. And in this moment, Ehud brings this message to the king. And as he leans in, verses 20 and 21, to bring this message to the king, he grabs this sword and he brings it into the belly of the king. 
Now, while it's fun to read all the details of the story, the point of this moment in history is not how the king dies, but it's who God uses. God chose someone who wasn't perceived to be strong at all. Why? Because this is what we see in God's economy. That God chooses people based on the measure of their surrender rather than the measure of their strength. In God's economy, he chooses people based on the measure of their surrender, not on the measure of their strength, not on their qualifications, not on what they can bring to the table and offer to God. No, God is looking for a heart, not a skill set. God didn't need Ehud because he was a warrior. He needed Ehud because he was willing. God didn't grab a man of great ability. He grabbed a man of availability. Ehud was willing to be used. He was surrendered to God. And God uses this so that God might show God's strength, his strength, not Ehud's strength. That the people would know definitively that it was God who had done this work, not Ehud. See, God looks for the heart that is humbly committed to him. We see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Blameless means whole, holy, fully given to God. William Booth, the, the founder of the Salvation Army, once said this, The greatness of a man's power lies in the measure of his surrender. The greatness of a man's power lies actually in the measure of his surrender. How surrendered is he to God? Because that's when God's strength shows up. And when God's strength shows up, look out. See, God isn't interested in resumes and pedigrees, in your education or your experience level. God's not looking at the things that the world is looking at. God's looking for the heart that is fully devoted. Because in God's economy, God chooses people based on the measure of their surrender far more than the measure of their strength. We see this, just to drive the point home, we see this right at the end of chapter 3. The very last verse of chapter 3 drives this point home all the more. Verse 31 says this, that after him, meaning after Ehud, was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Now, based on this name, Shamgar, the son of Anath, uh, scholars believe that the man is not likely even Jewish. It's likely that he is perhaps the byproduct of these Jews who were intermarrying with the Canaanites, with all the pagans around them. This thing that they were not to do. And Shamgar ends up as this byproduct of Israel's wandering. His name is not even Jewish. His genealogy doesn't seem to be Jewish. And yet God chooses the unexpected in order to redeem Israel. The man that we would have sidelined looking for someone who is fully a Jew, one of God's people, the man we would have sidelined, God actually raises up. A hero that God uses. And in his weakness, God displays strength. 
It says in verse 31, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad was a stick that you would use to drive oxen while plowing a field. At one end, it was pointed so that you could prod the, the cattle onward, and the other end had a hook or, or a, a, like a hoe that you would use to scrape dirt off the feet of the animals or, or the plow itself. It's not exactly military-type weaponry, and the, and the point of this is that, once again, God is raising up weakness in order to show his own strength. God chooses a man that we willingly would have overlooked because God chooses surrender over strength. All of this, chapter 3, shows the story of strength found in weakness. That if we want to be strong, it actually comes by being weak and surrendered to God. Not counting our strengths as strengths and not relying on them, but instead laying ourselves before God and acknowledging our weakness and surrendering ourselves to him to such a point where he is able to use us. But here's the thing. If God's strength is, like the scriptures say, is made perfect in weakness, then the question for you and I to wrestle with this week is, why is it then that we're always so caught up in our strengths? If God's strength is made perfect in weakness, why is it that we're always worried about strengths? Worried about whether we have strengths? Seeking to build up our strengths? Wanting to get the education or the credentials or all the things that we think are necessary in order to be used by God? If God's strength is made perfect in weakness, why do we keep sidelining ourselves, telling ourselves that he can't use us because we don't have this skill or we don't look like that person or we don't have that gift set? Why is it that we don't believe what God has said? Ehud could have been disqualified for his hand. Shamgar could have been discounted for not having the right equipment. But both of these men, because they were available to God and surrendered to God, were used by God. Not because of their strengths, but rather because of their weakness. So that God's strength might be displayed in and through them. The scripture tells us that Jesus came not in strength, but actually in weakness. He was not born a king in a capital, but instead he was wrapped in flesh and he was laid in a manger. Jesus came in weakness. The book of Philippians says that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead took up the form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid his life down for us while we mocked him and reviled him. And he did all of this so that in his weakness, God's strength to save might be seen. But the danger, just like the book of Judges, is that you and I, we would forget. We would forget that salvation comes from God and we would begin to rely on ourselves and our own strengths. That instead of looking to him and surrendering to him, we would look to ourselves and look to things in us. The danger is that we would forget. This entire chapter is predicated on that thought. Verse 7, they forgot, and as a result, they found themselves walking away from God and suffering for it. And the danger for you and I is that we forget that it is about God's grace 
that it is about God's strength, not ours, and only he is strong to save. And this is why throughout the scriptures it reminds us and calls us to remember, to remember, to remember what God has done. And in fact, one of the biggest calls for the church to remember is the call to communion, the call to come to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, which is the bread and the cup, and remember what God has done, that he alone is strong to save. So this time we're going to take communion together. If you haven't yet grabbed those elements, do so. Because this is a moment when the when the scriptures call us to remember. For those of you on campus who have the the little cups that we've distributed, the individually packaged one, grab those now. For those of you at home, grab the bread. Because here's what the scriptures call us to do. The scriptures tell us that on the night that Jesus died, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it to his disciples. And he said to them, This, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That when we take the bread, we remember that it is Jesus who saves. And our call in the scriptures is to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And so this is an act where we remember that he saved us. This is not how we earn salvation. In fact, this is an act of remembrance for those who have experienced his salvation by placing their faith and trust in him. And if you've not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the scriptures would call you to do that first. Place your faith in him. Trust him for your salvation. God is strong to save, and he can and will save you if only you cry out. If you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, would you do that now? Would you do that now? In fact, before we take this bread, might we pray together? Might I challenge you in this moment? Have you surrendered your life to God? And might I challenge you in this moment? Is there anything that you're holding on to? Any strength that you're looking to or holding on to in yourself that you need to surrender to him now? Would you surrender to him Pray with me if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're sensing the weight of that and the need for that. Would you just pray these simple words and know that God hears you and know that God will answer. Father, I confess my sin. I confess my need for you. I confess that I am weak. And so I come and turn to you. And I ask that you would forgive me, that you, by your grace and mercy, would save me. Father, I place my faith in you for salvation, and I place it in you alone. If you prayed that prayer today, know that God has forgiven you of all of your sin. Know that you now are a child of God. Know that no matter who you are, no matter your past, he can use you and he desires to use you. And so we come and together we remember that God is strong and mighty to save. Let us remember Christ's sacrifice. Let us eat the bread together. And let us then also take the cup and remember the sweetness of God's salvation. Jesus handed the cup to the disciples and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant 
And this is my blood shed for you. Let's drink together. Father, we just pause now. We commit ourselves to you. In all of our weakness, Father, we come to you. We surrender to you. Forgive us, Father, for seeking to walk in our own strength. Forgive us for our wanderings. Father, would you take our lives and use them now for your glory? And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you want to talk to someone about a decision you've made or let us know how God is moving through this series, visit nebc.ch slash contact. Be sure to stay connected with us throughout the week on social media or by subscribing to our weekly podcast. You can also stay up to date with the latest information about what's going on here at Northeast by subscribing to the Northeast News, our periodic newsletter that comes right to your inbox to keep you in the know. Thanks for listening to today's message, and we hope that you join us as we continue to make disciples on mission for Jesus Christ.